God, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for this place that you've provided that we can gather together as your people. We pray that you would meet us here in the midst of our time, that you would lead and guide us in all things. Uh, We confess that as we open your word that we cannot do this on our own. We need you to lead and guide and teach, to illuminate our hearts and our minds as we come to your word. And so we ask that you would do that. We pray that you would convict us where we need convicting. We pray that you would encourage us where we need encouraging. And we pray that you would just show us clearly your great love that you have for us in the midst of all that we talk about and look at this morning. I pray that we would leave here revived and excited, uh, having drawn closer to you this day. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, I I was reading uh, some statistics uh, this week. It was from an article that I saved uh, from a couple, uh, I say a couple, about six months, maybe a year ago, somewhere in there. And it was from the American uh, Psychiatric Association. And uh, what, the, what the study was and the statistics that came from it and the people they talked to, it took place just people in America. But what they were looking at is the different things that cause us stress in our life. And, and the main part of this study was stress as it relates to finances in our life. And, and so this was some of the found findings they came to. Uh, 90% of the Americans surveyed uh, said they had the same stress or increasing from the year before as it pertains to money. Right? So, so basically, we're either as stressed or more stressed than we were the year before as it pertains to money. The second thing they said was 75% of all those surveyed said that they had significant stress at least once a month uh, as it pertains to money in their life. So at least once a month, they're dealing with significant stress as it pertains to finances. 34% said that the major source of conflict relationally in their life had to do with finances. So almost a third, the biggest problems they were having with their relationships was to do with finances. And then I found this interesting. All of these things were the same, pretty almost exactly the same as far as uh, those numbers. And it didn't matter whether you were lower income or higher. That those that were more financially secure or or financially independent still had stress in different areas at the same rate as everybody else in terms of finances. Now, some of the ways they deal with it was different. Some of the things they said were uh, they were struggling with the fear of losing what they had or, or, or struggling with stress of having to continue to keep up with what they had earned or made before. But stress nonetheless. And so I was thinking about those statistics and then coming and looking at this passage in Malachi uh, chapter 3. And I think there's something that God speaks here and he tells us as we open this passage and we look at it, that there's a huge blind spot that we have when it comes to finances that actually leads to all these areas of stress in our life. And when we don't see that and we don't see what God clearly tells us here, it manifests itself in our life in all these different ways. And so I want us to think about this together, because as I read through those statistics and I think about that and I look around the room, just about all of us are being touched by this in some way or another. If these statistics are even close to right, we're dealing with this collectively. The majority of us by a lot are dealing with this. And so I want us to think about what this passage in Malachi says to us. Now, I kind of jokingly said we turn to Malachi and maybe you're not as familiar with it, Uh, I had an Old Testament prophet, a prophecy uh, professor in seminary who used to call it Malachi, and he'd say it's the Italian prophet. And uh, 
seminary professors are usually not very funny at all. That's about the best it gets right there. But, uh, but, but Malachi is a prophet writing post-exile. So there's three big sections of prophets we see in the Old Testament. Those before Israel is taken out by the Babylonians and the Syrians. Those that are speaking during the time that they've been taken out. And then when they return to their land and they rebuild the temple and they start to kind of function in that, there's prophets that speak into that. That's where Malachi comes. He's the last of these Old Testament prophets speaking at kind of the tail end of this. And this is what he was speaking to. And I think as we look at what he says here, it's so relevant to us today because this is what he was speaking to. He was speaking to a people that had grown very apathetic in their faith. That here they had seen God restore them and return them, but yet they were just kind of going through the motions. Yes, they'd rebuilt the temple and yes, they went and it was functioning and it was kind of working and they were going through the motions though. And that's what Malachi says over and over. You're not actually seeking God. You're just doing religious things. And what he says is the Messiah is coming. The long promised one that is promised all the way through the Old Testament is going to be coming soon. And when he comes, your apathy, this is not going to be a good thing. He's going to be a refining fire. And it's not going to be good in the way that they're living when he comes. It's going to be a a harsh awakening, what he would say. And so when I read Malachi and I read the things he says, it's just as relevant for the church today as it was when it was written. Because a lot of the things he talks about and he aims at and God says through Malachi are exactly what we see today in our culture. That we see in the church in America today. And I think everything he says pertains exactly to where we are. And so here's the way I want us to look at these few verses in Malachi together. He's going to address this idea of finances or money. And the first thing I want us to see is there is a lie that they have believed. And I would say we too have believed. And so the first thing that's going to happen here is we're going to see the lie. And then secondly, how God exposes and answers that. So we're going to talk about what the lie is, how God exposes and answers it. And then lastly, we're going to consider how do we live in light of the truth of what God says. Right. So there's a lie that we've believed Let's say they've believed and we've believed as well. And by the way, we have a huge blind spot to this, so it's hard for us to see a lot of the times. And then how God answers and exposes it. And then lastly, how do we live in light of it? And so let's just start in Malachi chapter 3 together, beginning in verse 6. For I, the Lord God, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statues and you have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. How shall we return? Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. And so God speaks very clearly and very directly to the people. And he says, you're robbing me. Right? He calls them to repent and to come back. And then he says, you're robbing me. And they say, how in the world... Have we robbed you? And he says, well, you're not giving generously. You're not doing what I've called you to do and taking care of one another and giving generously. And so you've robbed me. And so I want you to think about the truth that's underlying what God says there. There's something that that we may miss on the surface. It's very obvious, but sometimes because it's such a blind spot in our lives, we can miss this immediately what he says. Right. Because that's exactly what happens here with the people that God's speaking to. He says, you've robbed me. And they say, what are you talking about? How have we robbed you? And he says, you've robbed me by not being generous with what you have. 
You're not giving. You're not giving away. You're not taking care of others. You're keeping it all for yourself. And so you've robbed me. Well, here's the thing I want you to see. And it's the lie that we've believed that's under this. The truth that underpins what God's saying here is that all you have and all your stuff and all that you have as far as finances and your things and your house and all of it, it's all God's. And the lie that we've believed is that it's ours. We believe that all of it's ours. And so when God says you're not being generous with your stuff and that's robbing me, what he's saying is all you have is mine. And their blind spot here is they go, what in the world are you talking about? How have we robbed you? And, and, and I would say to you that that's the way we often would respond as well. We don't even stop to think about it. It's my stuff and my things and I can do with what I want with it. And what God says here is, no, actually, it's mine. And he tells them, you're robbing me by your lack of generosity. And so I would say the first lie that we believe is that the stuff that we have, whether it's money, whether it's what we have in the bank account, our house, our cars, the things that we have, that they're ours. That's the lie that we believe. It's mine and I can do whatever I want with it. And God says, no, actually, it's mine. And so that's, that's the first part of the lie that we believed. But I think the second part of it leads to why we're not generous. Why we try to hold on to what we have. And I think the second part of the lie that we believe is not only do we believe it's our stuff, but we believe it's primarily for us to use to then pursue happiness, to pursue our identity or our worth, or to pursue security in our life. And so we take what we have, and we take what God's given us, which is actually his, and we believe the lie that it's ours. And then we say, now I'm going to make a good life for myself with the stuff that I have. And so we seek to be uh, seek for happiness by what we can buy. And this is such a blind spot for us in our culture because we are inundated constantly with the lie that that's true. That you can take what you have. You can't take the finances, the resources that you have, and you can purchase a happy life for yourself. That is a lie. But we are so told that over and over and over again. We are bombarded constantly with advertising and everything in our society that says that's true, that it's like a fish in the water. Right? The fish doesn't know he's in the water because he's always been in the water. If you've grown up in America, you've always been bombarded, with, been bombarded with this idea that if you don't stop to think about it, you don't even realize that it's true. But we think we can buy our happiness. We think we can create a good life by, by getting a certain job and having a certain amount of money and buying a certain things. I, I remember so vividly going on a mission trip when I was a senior in high school to Jamaica. And we went there to help a guy build his house. And we got there. A bunch of high school students from Connecticut. And we went into this little area in the middle of the island of Jamaica and we helped this guy build his house. And it was about the half the size of this wing right here. And it was made out of cinder blocks. And he was the most joyous guy I've ever met in my entire life. He sang the entire time he worked. And he was so excited that we were helping him build this house that he was so proud of. And he had this tiny little room. His entire house could fit in my living room of my house. And he was completely joyous. And he sat around and talked with his friends and sang songs and spent time with people and served them and cared for them. And he didn't care at all about how big his house was. 
But yet we bought into the lie that I need a giant house to be happy. Or I need to live in a certain neighborhood. Or I need to have certain things to now be happy. And so we hold on tight to our money, my money, because I'm chasing this dream that I will be happy by what I buy. And we're fed that lie over and over. Or we take what we have and we believe the first lie that it's mine. And then we seek to build an identity or self-worth by what we have. I'm going to buy a nice car and then people will go, oh, look at that guy. He's got a nice car. Truth is, nobody really cares, but that's what we think. Right. Or I'm going to buy a really nice watch or I'm going to whatever. And people go, oh, nice watch. And then they walk off and they don't care. But we think I'm going to build my identity through what I have. People go, oh, look at him. Look at what he has and look at what. Right. And so we, we seek that. We seek our identity and our worth by the things we have. Or we seek security. If I have a certain amount of money in my bank account, then everything will be good. If I have enough saved for a rainy day, if something bad happens or I lose my job or somebody gets sick, I'll be able to pay for all of it and I'll be able to take care of all of it and I'm in control. Guess what? That's a lie too. You're not actually in control. We can pretend like we are and we can seek those things and so we try to do it in all these different areas. And so we let the first lie, believing all our stuff is our own, fuel the second lie that money can give us all these other things when it can't. And yet we continue to do that. And we continue to go round and round on that. And I think part of the reason is is we're just like the people here. God says, you have robbed me by not being generous. And they go, what are you talking about? What do you mean? How have we robbed you? That's what they say in verse 8. They can't even fathom the idea that it's not their stuff. What do you mean? This is my stuff. We do the same thing. And so you see the, the problem and how it goes around. Now, here's the hard part for all of us. The sin of our heart, the deceitfulness of our heart, we are so subtle in this. You can be sitting here right now and be in your mind excusing how this is not you. It doesn't really apply to me. I drive an old car. I live paycheck to paycheck. I don't buy that many things. I don't whatever. And you can easily go, this doesn't apply to me. I remember reading a a book that Tim Keller wrote called Counterfeit Gods. I've given that to several people. If you've never read it, I would recommend it. The whole book is about the idols that we take things in our life and we make them idols. We put our faith and trust and hope in different things other than God. And so obviously there's a chapter on money in his book. And I remember reading the book. And he was talking about people who are very materialistic and they buy lots of things and they buy flashy flashy things and expensive things to get their self-worth and all this stuff. And I remember very vividly reading the book and reading along and going, that's right, you tell them, Tim. That's what they do, right? I, I remember very smugly reading along like, yep, yep, yeah, I know lots of people like that. And then I turned the page and he says, and if you're frugal, and I went, oh, wait a second, <laughs> Or cheap. That's what my kids tell me. Dad, you're so cheap. <laughs> he says, but if, if that's you and you're saving money and, and you have to have a certain amount in your bank account because you think that controls things and that keeps everything safe and whatever, money's still an idol in your life and you're using it for control. And it was like getting punched in the gut. Like, yeah, that's what I do. I don't go buy all the things to, to fill my needs, but I will go. I'm not going to buy those things so i got enough money. 
And the truth is, in our culture, it becomes such a blind spot because no matter where you are or how much money you have or whatever it is, you can always find somebody who's got more and is more extravagant on their self than you are. And so you go, well, I'd do that a little bit, but not like that guy over there. And then we self-justify. We go, that's not me. I don't do that. That's the deceitfulness of our heart, how quickly we will do that. And so we believe these two lies. And they go round and round, that our stuff is ours, and that it can give us these other things when it can't. And so I want you to see what God says directly to this idea. He says, you have robbed me, right? And so if you go back there, you have robbed me, and they say, how have we robbed you? And he says, you've robbed me in your tithes and your contributions, and you're cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. And the first thing I want you to see when we see what God speaks into this is just what I just said. That it's not ours, it's his. And when we buy into the lie that it's ours, it leads to all these problems. It leads to the stress and the struggle and the relational conflict and all the things that come with it. You know, I was thinking about this idea and how ridiculous it is to even think that all my stuff is mine. I don't know how many of you ever use the New City Catechism questions that are printed in your bulletin. They're in there every week. There's a question every week, question and answer to help you understand big ideas of scripture. I use it with my kids and they're great. And the very first one is what is our only hope in life and death? Right? Jed knows it. I see him smiling. He's going, yeah, yeah, I got it. Right? We're not our own. We belong to God. That's, That's the first one. What is our only hope in life and death? We're not our own. We belong to God. That's not just a neat little saying to remember. That's a truth of who God is and all things are his. And we go, yeah, yeah, mind, body, soul, I'm all God's. But not my stuff. <laughs> right? but, but not my house and my bank account and these other things. And, and we buy into that lie that it's just this area or it's just spiritual or it's just this. But it's all of it. It's all his. I want you just to think, just think cosmically, big, big level. The creator and sustainer of all things. All things are in existence because God says so. So what do you own that's not his? You think about how ridiculous that is. No, no, this is mine. This little plot of land is mine. No, it's not. It's ridiculous when you stop and think about it, but yet we think that way. And we go back to that over and over. Now, here's the problem that I think arises sometimes is the ejection comes and we go, but yeah, but I worked really hard for what I have. I, I, I got a paper route when I was 12 years old and I saved all my money. And I went to school and I got a degree and I got my job and I earned all this and I made my way through the ranks and I've done all this and I've saved money for retirement and I've done, I've worked really hard. And my question to that would be, where did your gifts come from? Who allowed those circumstances and opportunities in your life? Who gave you parents that showed you the value of a dollar? God did. James says in chapter 1 that all good gifts come from the Father. All of them. But yet we want to believe it's mine. And God says, no, it's not yours, it's mine. I was walking last night going over my sermon, as I often do, and I walk in my neighborhood. And last night it was really dark, but it was really clear sky. And I was thinking about this and just kind of walking and looking at the stars. And I start to think about how big creation is. And the God who spoke that into existence and holds it in place. And yet I want to go, this little bit of stuff is mine and I'm going to hold on real tight to it. 
But yet I have a father who holds all this together by the power of his word and it's all his. And he says, I will abundantly give you more than you could ever ask or need. And yet I'm holding on to these things. And all the while I'm stressed because, oh no, I don't have enough stuff. Or I might not be able to control what's going on around me. Do you see how ridiculous that is? And so God throws that open and he goes, it's all mine. But then the next thing I want you to see what he says, look at verse 9 and 10. He says, you're robbing me. He says, it's all mine. But then he says, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And so I want you to think about the first part of what he says, the negative, and then we'll look at the positive. He says, you're cursed. You're cursed with a curse because you've, you're robbing me. Because you think it's your stuff and it's for you to use and you're hoarding it and you're holding on to it and you're not being generous. And so you're cursed. The Bible, when we talk about curse, that kind of throws us a little. Like God's putting his thumb down on us and he's, you know, getting us. It's, there's consequences to going against the way God created the world. And so when he says you're cursed, he says you're taking what I've given you and you're not realizing that it's actually mine. And you're thinking it's yours. And so you're, you're kind of looking inward. And then instead of using it to show what God's like and to love other people and to meet needs, you're making it all about you. And he says you're missing out on a huge blessing. You're missing out on the way I created you to be. Or you're cursed. There's a consequence that comes with that. He has a very pointed word for Israel at the time. He says you were supposed to be a nation to show people what God's like and you're not doing it. You're not showing what I'm like. Because you're robbing me. Because you're not seeing it as God's to be used for his glory and your good, but you're making it all for yourself. And he says, you're missing it. And so then he says this picture here that's so incredible when you start to think about it. He says, I want you to bring your full tithe to the storehouse and give. If you know the Old Testament, you know what he's talking about. Maybe you don't. The tithe is one tenth of all that you have. And God put this into place in the Old Testament with his people. And he said, I want you to bring the first tenth of all that you have back to me. One tenth, ten percent. Agrarian society. You even see that in the language here when it talks about uh, if you do this, I will, I will not destroy the fruits of your soil or the vine in the field or all those kind of things. Right? If you lived in that society, you kind of knew what they're talking about. You bring the first fruits of everything you made back to God. And so if you're a farmer who grows corn, you bring 10% of your corn back and you present it. And what you were doing is you were saying, this is all God's. It's not mine, it's his. It's a way to be reminded that it's all God's and to see that clearly. But it also was there to, to help uh, bring ministry. They were to do ministry with it. It was there to help meet the needs of the poor, the widows and the orphans. If you read in Deuteronomy, I think it's Deuteronomy 14, he says, bring your full tithe into the, the storehouse, into the, the temple, and it will help do the ministry. But then we will also meet the needs of the poor and the widows, and I will bless you richly. That's what God says. And what you're doing is you're aligning yourself with who God is and what you were made for, which is to show what he's like, to glorify him. It's not to be all for you. It's not yours. It's his. And that's what it helps to do. It re-centers us on the truth that all that we have is not ours, but it's God. But then God says an incredible thing. 
He tells us that. But then he says this incredible thing in verse 10. He says, put me to the test. That's the only time I know in the Bible when God says it like that. Put me to the test. If you're generous and you see your things as mine and not your own, and you seek to love other people and help them with that, put me to the test and just see what happens. He says, I'm going to bless you in ways that you can't fathom. I will make sure that there's no need. And I will take care of you and I will protect you. What he's saying is put your hope in me, not in your stuff. And he says, there'll be a blessing that you cannot fathom. He says, give more away and rely on me. Quit making the thing that you serve your own money, your own stuff, and turn to me. And give generously. And I read what God says here. And then I read the statistics that say 75% of the people in the room are stressed out over their money. And I go, here's God saying, put me to the test. It's mine, and you treat it that way, and I will take care of you. And how often we go, yeah, yeah, okay. I'm not going to do that. And then we just limp along. We just ignore everything he says. And God calls us to this, and he says, just put me to the test, and I'll show you. So what do we do with that? The lie is that it's our stuff and we think it can give us all these things. And God says, no, it's not your stuff. And if you will be generous and you will begin to give away and you'll begin to do these things, I'm going to take care of you. And there will be a blessing that you cannot fathom. So what do we do with that? If the statistics are right, the statistics tell us that of American Christians, we give 2% of our income away. In America, that's the statistics. Those are evangelical Christians, 2%. And so that means, as what I'm about to say, I'm going to step all over your toes. And so I want to start here before I even say that. You say, well, what do we do? We, we want to think do to be. Okay, so what do I do to be a good Christian? It doesn't work that way, thankfully. God doesn't love you because you give 10%. God loves you because of what Jesus has done and nothing else. Thankfully, wonderfully. And so it's not to try to make you feel guilty and okay, now we're going to pass the plate and I want you to give money. I'm probably the worst person in the world at fundraising. I don't care. Because if you stop giving money and I don't have a paycheck, I'm going to do this anyway. I'll go work at Walmart and still come here. So don't hear, okay, this is a big fundraiser, now we want you to give money. But what I do want you to hear is we're struggling along, stressed out about money, and God's word says this is what you do. And so I want you to start with who you are in Jesus and then work out with what that looks like. It's not due to be. It's not, okay, now that you do this, God accepts you. God accepts you and loves you and has saved you because of what Jesus has done and nothing else. Jesus left his throne and his riches and all of it. And for our sake, he became poor and he laid his life down for us. And what the scriptures tell us is that changes us. It changes us from self-centered people 
who want to make it all about our stuff and what I have to, whoa, look at what God's done to me. It's all his. And so please start there. The glory of the good news of the gospel is you are saved by what God's done for you. No doing of your own. By grace, you have been saved through faith and it's not your own doing. So what does that mean for us on how we live? We should see that everything I am and everything that I have is not my own, but it belongs to God. And I have been saved by a Savior who came and laid his life down for me. So it's all his, every bit of it. And I can pretend like it's not, and I can ignore that, but it doesn't change the truth. And so when we talk about living in light of who we are, we want to live in light of who we are in Christ. We want to show the world what God's like. Well, what is God like? God is gracious beyond anything we can comprehend. So we should be gracious. We should show people what that looks like. We should seek to meet needs. We should be giving sacrificially. So that takes me to the second part. It has to come from an overflow of that. If you feel really guilty by what I'm saying here, don't start going, oh, I guess I have to do this. I want you to do it out of an overflow of your heart of who God is and what he's done in your life. But then you go, well, where do I start? I think you try to give 10% of all you have away. I think that's where you start. Now, you may disagree with me. You can come talk to me about it. We can have this discussion about, well, does that 10% carry over into the New Testament? I think it does. And I think it's kind of like the baseline. I think it's actually where we start. Now, there's a whole lot of things that come up when I start to say that. And go, well, wait a second. I don't even know how to get close to that. If the statistics are right, we give away 2%. Somebody will tell you you should give away 10% of all you have. You go, whoa. So make baby steps. Start to give generously. Start to sacrifice things that you want and you think you need for the good of others, and see what happens. I'm pretty confident in what's going to happen. You're going to be blessed. Now, I I have to have another side note here. (laughs) Say, hey, give it away, and give away 10%, and God will bless you, and then you'll get rich. That's the perversion of the gospel. That's not true. And so I'm not going to tell you if you'll give a whole bunch of money away. Uh, If you give $1,000 away, you're going to get $10,000 next month. There's going to be a windfall. I've actually heard uh, false prophets on TV say that very thing. It's the sowing principle. Give $1,000 and God will give it back to you. And it's appealing to your idol of money in your life that you think it can buy you all these things and believing those lies. But God says, I will bless you abundantly and you won't have any need. I think there is a picture in the Bible that says not only will he bless you, he will bless you financially so that you can give more money away. Dang it, right? The deceitfulness of our heart goes, oh, yeah, okay. Now, now we're getting it. We're going to get more. Oh, but it's so you can give it away and help other people. Shoot, right? It reveals your heart real quickly. And so I would tell you, even as you begin to think on this, start to give and start to make those steps. Because what will happen, it will reveal your heart and where your hope is. And that's how we grow. We grow in discipleship that way. But I don't want to give that. Why do I not want to give that? Because I think my stuff's going to make me happy when only God can make me happy. 
I'm probably not trusting God as good. Or if I give this away, I'm not sure I'll be able to pay all my bills and I'm not sure what that will look like. Well, maybe I'm not trusting that God's in control of all this and what he says here. And so begin to make those steps and see what God does and the way he meets you in that. Two other things real briefly, just as we kind of close on this. There's a whole lot of things that pop up when we start to talk about this. I just told you I think 10% still in effect for today. You can disagree with me if you have questions about that. We'll talk about that. I think I'm going to write a thing this week that we'll put maybe in our email this week that helps kind of spell out exactly why that is, why I think that to be the case, and I want to make sure we're clear on that. But you can come talk to me in the meantime if you'd like. But I do believe 10%, but then the question goes, well, what's the storehouse? Does that mean you have to bring 10% to your local church? I'm going to shoot myself on the foot again. No, I don't think so. I think what God's calling us to do is is we're to tithe for the work of the ministry. Now, if your local church is the primary place that you're doing ministry together as a family on mission together, then it should be the primary place we tithe. And I think that's a good principle, but that doesn't mean it has to be the place that you give money. If we had a big board, I'd be in trouble. Don't say that. (laughs) But that's okay. Because I'm going to do this anyway. <laughs> so it doesn't matter. But, but we want to, to be faithful to what God calls us to. And so I think the picture is that we do come together. And we do give our money. And I would say to you, if you have a real problem of tithing to your local church, you're in the wrong local church. If you don't trust the mission and the vision and where we're headed and what we're doing, you probably should go somewhere else. Or you should come talk to us about why you don't trust it. But I think that is the picture that God calls us to. And so when we start to look at all those things, I just want to end here as we think about it. God calls us to this picture, and then he says, test me on this. I have to confess, I often don't talk about money here. And I was thinking about this this week. And the reason is because of fear of man over fear of God. Afraid I'll upset people. Or I'm afraid they'll, they'll think, oh, he's just trying to get money for whatever. But the truth is, and please hear me, we're talking about this right now because of what God says here. Put me to the test on this. I'm going to bless you in ways that you can't fathom if you'll test me on this. And so I want you to think about what that means to be blessed in that way. One, I think it frees you from your money being your identity and your stuff. All those lies that we buy into. There is a real truth, and as you give to other people, it's a lot better than trying to buy your happiness from the stuff that you have. When we begin to meet needs and we begin to fund things that are for God's glory across the face of the earth, it's way better than buying a new TV. I promise. And there's a blessing that comes with that. And yes, part of that may be material. God may pour out more blessing financially on you so you can give more. But a lot of it is spiritual that we just see more clearly who God is and what he's done for us and the way that we now get to help and care for other people. And it's a beautiful picture that God knows exactly what he's talking about. And so just, just listen to this and I'll, I'll end here as you can think about it. I read this this morning, actually. If the churches. Evangelical churches tithe 10%, it would raise an extra $150 billion. $150 billion. 
It would cost $25 billion to end global hunger. Do you hear that? When God says, test me on this, and I will bless you in ways that you can't even see. Do you see what could happen? If people who claim to love Jesus said, let's be sacrificial in what we give to and the things that we go after, do you see what could happen? It would cost $12 billion to end illiteracy. It would cost $15 billion for every person on the planet to have clean water. That'd be in one year's tithe of the church if we did what God said. We say, yes, there's spiritual blessings, and there absolutely are, but there's real-world practical things that we could see end if we took God at his word. And I want to remind you, I'm going to end here, because I always want to end here. God still loves you. He loves you completely and totally. Wherever you are in that. But imagine what we could, just what this church could do. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. That you saved us by no doing of our own. That you willingly laid down all that you had to come to us. I pray that this fact and this truth of who you are and what you've done for us would fuel us as we think on these things. I pray that as we go today that we would seek your face on what this would look like in our own lives. I know you know each person here. You know the struggles and the hardships they have and where they struggle in these different areas. And I pray that you would just show them clearly how much you love them, that you are at work in these things. I pray that you would show us a great opportunity together to make much of you in the way we spend our money, in the way that we use our time, in the ways that we use our talents, that we would see all of it is yours for your glory and for our good. We thank you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.